Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. I'm Robert Rutherford. And I'm Andrew Orvidal. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. The show takes place on the third Thursday of every month at the Deer Pile in Denver, Colorado. This special edition of the Narrators was recorded live at the Denver Music Summit on November 23rd, 2013. The theme of the evening was Tales from the Road. First story of the evening was told by your hosts, Robert Rutherford and Andrew Orvidal. Robert and I have uh, musical backgrounds. I used to play bass and guitar in some bands that no one in this room has ever heard of. Uh, and Robert has performed yeah, and I was bands. I was in some local bands, Rabbit is a Sphere and Everything Absent are Distorted. Thank who you. four people have heard of. Cool. Yeah. And they're Good all, job. Yeah. They're on one, Thanks, Mom. <laughs> one section. And then a silent supporter. Uh, or someone who's infuriated. It was in, the, was in the band. Uh, oh, so <laughs> he's like, I'm, I have mixed memories. <laughs> so it's only natural that, that eventually Robert and I would collaborate on a musical project. Uh, and we, we finally did. We finally got our, our big chance uh, when we formed an acapella dubstep band. Uh, based on a joke. Based on a joke. So we also have a podcast where we feature uh, some of the stories from our show. It's called the narratorspodcast.com. It's online. You can find it there. No big whoop. You can download episodes from iTunes. I'm not here to plug anything. Um, but we went to record uh, the bumpers for our podcast, and we were just sort of dicking around uh, in the living room where we were recording it. And uh, we just Making started. Mouth fart yeah, noises. we just made some mouth fart noises, essentially. Like, you know. And one of us made a joke that it would be funny to start an acapella dubstep group. We're like, yeah, that'd be, and we envisioned it like a barbershop quartet with like Oakley blades and Z Cavariccis and like shingled haircuts. (laughs) That's what we, that's what we were thinking. But then we actually decided to do it. So we brought in a third guy, our buddy, Andy Jewett. And we, uh, we got our show at this comedy show. Uh, called the Grolix. The next one is next Friday at the Buck Theater, 10 p.m., $10. Again, not here to plug. Not here to yeah. plug anything. Yeah. Advertise anything. Great comedian Baron Vaughn's on um, the lineup. Yeah, no, I've heard. No I've big heard. Whoop. Um, so we, we were going to perform, and we, and we had our first band practice 10 minutes before performing in the alley behind the theater. We're out, we're out on the sidewalk like... And the comedians were just walking by like, you idiots, like this is going to be the shittiest thing ever. Uh, but it was a hit. It was like, people loved it. People were For some reason, <laughs> for some reason, people really liked it. Yeah. Uh, people were coming up after the show like, man, I actually really love dubstep and you guys nailed it. Oh yeah, and that was really... like the worst compliment we got. <laughs> yeah. It was like from genuine dubstep enthusiasts. Yeah because, yeah, because the practice essentially consisted of the three of us you know, like standing there like, okay, so you just make like uh, fart vacuum noise, you make the fax machine noise, and then you just do air raid sirens, and, that and then, about it. And then yeah. that'll be the song. And I assume everyone in this room knows what upset music sounds like, but if you don't, it's easily summarized as like a transformer, like Optimus Prime style transformer, arguing with a fax machine over who put a drawer of silverware in a microwave. That's basically... <laughs> If you've seen any shitty movie trailer in the past two years, you heard it. You heard it. You do know what it is because it was in that movie trailer. So almost immediately we started getting other show offers, which was a, a huge surprise which to us. It was fucking weird. Yeah, we, we, got, we got asked to be on radio shows. Uh, we were invited to come up to Chicago to perform with a punk, uh, punk acapella group. I didn't, hear, I didn't hear about that. Yeah, that one was totally managerial. You, you, don't, you didn't hear about all of them. Uh, 
Why and, we, we should have done that. Yeah. Uh, but, a, but a couple weeks later, we got invited to perform in South by Southwest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know that was our reaction, too. What? <laughs> what? How does that happen? <laughs> uh, but we figured it was sort of too stupid an opportunity to pass up. And so we sort of like wrestled as to whether or not we could do it. Um, I was like smack dab in the middle of finishing my master's thesis. And my, my master's thesis was actually due to my committee about a week and a half after we returned from South by Southwest. But I was like, well, this kind of takes precedent. So I'll go ahead and do this. <laughs> so, we, so we sort of lined it up and... And, and, uh, and, go, and then like 24 hours before he left, I caught this like... I think it was called a rotovirus or something. I don't know what the technical name was, but it was translated to like puking roughly 45 times in 24 hours. And I was like, I don't think I can go because I can't be cooped up. We were going to drive like directly there. And I was like, I can't be in a car for stopping literally every seven minutes for me to puke. And then at the last minute, I was like, I think, I think I'm good. Like 6 a.m. in the morning, I was like, I think I'm good. We can go. So yeah. we, uh, we were ready to hit the road. And, uh, and off we went. Yeah, so the morning, we all hopped in the car. We, we got on the, the Chevy Traverse of our bandmate, Andy Jewett. And, uh, but Andrew brought along a surprise guest, uh, who was this 25-year-old narcoleptic woman. Uh, and we, like, we were late getting on the road, and we were just going to drive through. We were late getting on the road, but we had to go pick her up first. And we just sat outside of her house while she slept, I guess. I don't know. And... She, but she just, we just she waited was replying there while to she was sleeping. That's all I know. She was replying to And then to she, just, she eventually just sort of like shambles out with a pillow and a book and gets in the car and goes <laughs> to sleep immediately and stayed asleep for the entirety of the trip. More or less. More or, More less. or less. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then we drove, if you've ever driven directly uh, from Denver to Austin, it's about 480 hours, um, <laughs> the trip. <laughs> Uh, pretty much the ugliest uh, stretch possible. We would we would drove through all these like tiny Texas towns that were like, they were like pre-apocalyptic wastelands. <laughs> like it was so depressing. It was like the entire town was supported by like a Sonic. Like should that Sonic fail, everything everything <laughs> would be destroyed. <laughs> like it was like horror movie caliber little Texas towns. Like if we break down here, none of us leave alive. Nothing. The Chevy Traverse will be junked out back. We'll be like, our like bones will be made into a chandelier somewhere in like a fucking church. It'll be the worst. Uh, yeah, it was terrifying. And so we were just eating garbage. Well, I'll just speak for me. Um, just like shit that I never eat. I don't eat amazingly great, but I don't fucking eat Arby's the usually. Best way to the best way to recover from a rotovirus. Yeah, exactly. After totally <laughs> cleansing my system on the ultimate power cleanse, I was like, no, let's just fill it with Arby's and Sonic and uh, just trash. If I could just find like a barrel of trash. So we were, we were in one town and I, I actually, I prepared because yeah, Robert I, has I was, to brag I was about thinking this. ahead. Yeah. I, was, I actually was proud of myself because these guys are like flooding their garbies, their bodies with garbage, but I had fruit and nuts and yogurt and uh, wheat squares. And I, 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 like, I, know, I was actually... so cool. I was, <laughs> carrots. I was, I was set. So I wasn't <laughs> eating this garbage because, mainly because I was working on my thesis this entire time, this entire trip, or trying to, while there's pulsating uh, dubstep music while we're not practicing. But we, we stop in this town. There's a Sonic. These guys get tater shits or whatever they're called. And then we're, like, we're getting out of town or we're trying to. We're, we're already behind because of the narcoleptic woman. And Andrew sees a Dairy Queen. And he literally, he's like, oh, I want a couple bites of a peanut butter parfait. 
So he pulls a U-turn, and we sit there at a Dairy Queen while these guys go in so he can get his peanut butter parfait before we get back on the road. Yeah, like, <laughs> if I had wanted to construct a series of events to annoy Robert as much as possible, I couldn't have done it as well, well as what we did. Uh, so we go to this Dairy Queen, and I had to loop around. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, there's also Dairy Queens in Denver, if you uh, really want two bites of a peanut butter parfait. But when in, when in Rome, right? When in Texas, I want to I wanna see what the town's talking about. So I went into this Dairy Queen with... And it took literally 30 minutes to get, uh, get our food because there was a family of six in front of us having a legitimate, legitimate dinner inside the Dairy Queen. And they were like hemming and hawing over the menu. Like, which combo basket is, is, the, is the best choice? So it, it took about 30 minutes. And when I came back in, in the car, like the ambient air temperature in the car was so much cooler. Uh, and Robert's just staring at me from the back seat like, you fucking son of a bitch. I did offer you carrots by, like, prior. Well, the peanut butter parfait was worth it. I did only have two bites. <laughs> yeah, you didn't, it didn't even make it to the car. You like sat in there for a half hour. You, as you were walking out, it was like two bites. I just wanted a taste. Can. I just yeah. wanted a taste. <laughs> Again, like I was trying to antagonize him. Like, <laughs> oh, I hope that was worth it for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it felt. So we, we, after the 480-hour drive, we finally arrive in Austin. And the people who invited us to perform were nice enough to offer us a place to stay, which was very generous, and we were very excited about that. Uh, but what we hadn't really anticipated was that it was a party house, a South by Southwest party house, and we were sleeping in the living room. So my whole, my, the, like my everything, the reason I brought up the research is because I needed to work pretty much every second while, when we weren't on stage acting like fart monsters. <laughs> uh, and so I, I sort of needed a, just a little bit of sleep to do that. But we get there, and it, we're sleeping in the living room, and it's, it's, and it's just a party house. It's ridiculous. So like, I'm, I, like I realized the minute we pretty much walk through the door and people are like walking around wagging sausages out of their <laughs> jeans, that this is not going to go well for me. I miss that. I miss the. <laughs> it was you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the next day we went to South by Southwest. I don't know if any of you have been to South by Southwest. This was my first time going. It was like the craziest spectacle I've ever seen in my life. It was fucking insane. Like you could just be walking, you're like, hey, there's Ice Cube at the Dentine Ice Air Tent. Like, <laughs> like it would just be like the stages like just combine any shitty brand with any stupid activity and you have a south by southwest yeah it's like stage. the weird al crank yanker uh <laughs> comedy mashup tent by brought to you by kia epiglottis the <laughs> crest whitening strips biodome like the dumbest shit so we go so we perform after all this uh, there's a bunch of comedy and then we perform uh our acapella dubstep and uh I don't want to brag about this, but we ate shit pretty <laughs> hardcore. And we realized we were the most underwhelming thing anybody had seen. Like when we did it in Denver, people were like, that was the weirdest thing I've seen tonight. Not at South by Southwest. There was literally a dude outside the venue playing a violin wearing a werewolf mask. Like we were upstaged before we even got in, <laughs> before we got in the show. They're like, oh, yeah, it's acapella dubstep. He has like a, a lime yellow bodysuit that he's jumping around in. Like boring. That's seen it. <laughs> so, yeah, we ate it pretty bad. So we had a couple days left in Austin to lick our wounds. 
and we and and we did so. But I, I didn't sleep, and I was just trying to work as much as I could. I didn't see any shows. About as close as I get was seeing a, the a hologram ice cube or whatever on the Doritos Ice Breeze uh, <laughs> jumbotron on Sixth Avenue. Um, that, la- that last night there, uh, like at this point, I'm sort of frantic about this stupid decision that I've made to come to South by Southwest when I have so much work to do. And I try and convince everybody that we're with, including the narcoleptic, that, that we need to leave Austin before 6 a.m. so that we can get back to Denver so I can try and buckle down and get back to my research. But if, the, if those first two nights were bad at the party dome... In South by Southwest, the third night was really the the kicker, and and the gloves were off for all involved. It was it was pure hedonism, and uh, I, I was I slept on the couch for about 13 minutes before 2 a.m. when everybody arrived and turned it up a notch, and then I just sort of like tried to hide in various closets and bedrooms. Uh, to, to avoid people and it just wasn't working because people would find me and like, like it was people were making it their mission like hey what are you fucking doing sleeping in the closet come party <laughs> and there was this one guy who was the, who was the worst offender and I, while I was high, sleeping in uh, one of the bedrooms or trying to sleep I could hear him in the kitchen and he kept trying to get people to do Lady in the Tramp with sausages with him. Same. Because uh, there were like lots of sausages at this house. I don't even know why. But he like kept trying to like, you put it in your mouth and I'll put it in my mouth and we'll be in the middle. It was the worst. Uh, and then eventually I got kicked out of all of the bedrooms. I made it back up on the couch with seven futon cushions over my head trying to, trying to avoid the noise. Uh, and then eventually people dispersed, and I took the futon cushions off, but there was a, a, like a cot uh, about six feet from my head, and super like close to, close to the time when we needed to leave, there was the, the same sausage guy decided to uh, have some activities with another person from the party. Not very, not very smart. He dr- like dry humping this person on a cot six feet from my head. In retrospect, I should have gone to the bathroom. In retrospect, <laughs> I would have just gone into the bathtub. But uh, I thought Robert was asleep. Next time, say something. Yeah, you know, make, lesson, give, lesson give, a, give me a lesson bird learned. call. Give me a fake lesson cough or something. <laughs> I was able to get everybody into the van by 6 a.m., though. And, and, Thanks, uh, Dad. <laughs> Thank you, Dad. <laughs> I was cracking the whip. Like, everybody up. Everybody up. Let's go. Let's go. I got everybody into the van. And I did have... This, this brief period of that morning where, where we, we were leaving Austin and the sun was rising and I was listening to this beautiful album by Songs Ohio and uh, I was in a car full of sleeping, smelly drunks uh, and, and I felt at peace at least a little bit with the bad decision that I had made making this whole trip. And, and then when I was driving there, we realized that there's like one moment on every long, shitty road trip where you get just like a sliver of time. Like I was driving later, same scenario. I think it only happens when your car mates are asleep and then you're like, you can actually concentrate. But there's like these huge storm clouds coming in New Mexico. I was like, wow, this is beautiful. And then you like stop to pee and it's ruined. You get back in the car. You're like, wow, this is horrible again. But there is like one moment every road trip where you're like, this is amazing. Just for a sliver, a sliver of time. Um, so we got back into town and we're like, was that worth it? Like, I don't know if that was, if that was worth it. Like we spent, uh, a, a good amount of money. I did irreparable damage to my liver. Uh, 
pretty significantly spoiled my reputation with Robert as a decent person uh, in general. I think if you'd asked me like the week afterward, I'd been like, that was the stupidest fucking thing I've ever done. Uh, but we've had so much good come of it. I mean, this improbable, the, the improbable success of our acapella dubstep group is growing uh, not only have we gone to South by Southwest, but we continue to play shows. We just played a show last week in San Francisco. Uh, <laughs> I'm sad to say. <laughs> to glowing reviews, yeah, I yeah. bet. And to, so, you know... So we did a like, show at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we got to perform in a theater, an actual theater for theater goers <laughs> who drink wine. And now we're at the Denver Music Summit? Yeah, now we're presenting here at the Denver Music Summit. It's amazing. And so we, we get to talk to, you know, we have lots of musician friends. And, it, like, they all sort of have one sort of overriding emotion when we sort of tell them this story. And that's... that's Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Good job. Which is understandable. Which yeah. is understandable. Um, so that's our story. If you want to see us, check out the Mouth Steppers. That's the name of our band. Um, your first uh, storyteller this evening is, uh, is, is filling in on short notice. She just released a compilation of, of uh, local artists called In Good Company. Please welcome Megan Burt. I thought that hand was like, help me on stage. No, that wasn't, that wasn't for that purpose. This is comfortable. Let's do this. Robert called me yesterday, uh, yesterday, as in like not even 24 hours ago, and said, can you fill in last minute for this thing? Like you're not allowed to hold a guitar and you have to tell a story for 10 minutes long about something on the road. And I thought, cool, yeah, sure. I'll say yes to anything. And then I got off the phone in this like total panic. Like I've got tons of stories from the road and I started racking my brain. Like I have this one time where my car literally um, drove across by itself without me in it across a uh, parking lot into a rushing river up in Evergreen. And that sucked real bad. And then there's this one time where I was on tour playing for prisons and I accidentally said over the microphone in front of two 200 incarcerated felons at a maximum state security prison in Frackville, Pennsylvania. Shit, my G-string just broke. And like, <laughs> I've gone back for the last four years. It was the best string break. Anyway, so I called my friend Katie, um, who is wonderfully open, and uh, I save all my embarrassing, raunchy, and sort of inappropriate stories for it. And I said, can you like help me think of something that's happened from my travels in the last many years that I can stretch out to 10 minutes long. And she thought about it and she said, you know, you've got a lot of stories about your vibrator. So despite minimal effort to come up with something else and sort of wiping away all comfort in front of lots of strangers and first impressions, I'm here to tell you the story of my traveling vibrator. Um, this story starts in Boston. I think when you don't have a guitar, you're supposed to, like, do this. I want you to know that I'm dying inside <laughs> right now. Uh, this story starts in Boston. Uh, my junior year of college, I went to music school, and um, 
the school had assigned me a roommate, you know, as they do when you live in a dorms, and my friend Jess was my roommate and remained my roommate and one of my best friends through all of college. And when I went to school, I was a little green, you might say. <laughs> Don't judge me. My parents shipped me to Catholic school. I'm, like, going to hell just for saying the word vibrator in front of humans. <laughs> So, uh, so about my junior year, Jess realized that maybe I was a little pent up and um, that maybe I could use, you know, some pent up tools. Um, so we walked our butts over to Newberry Street and I was wearing sunglasses and she's from Long Island and so, you know, she did this when she was like 14. And... Um, <laughs> And, uh, and we walked into the sex shop, and they, uh, you know, went through all the, like, settings and um, accessories. There's a lot of accessories, <laughs> apparently. And um, the colors, there's some sizes. And um, <laughs> I walked out of the store with my first vibrator. So fast forward to Thanksgiving of that year. I flew to Monterey to spend Thanksgiving with a lot of family members Let's just call it Henry for the sake of my, um, Henry. So Henry and I got acquainted very quickly. And that, um, that November, I, I flew to Monterey to spend Thanksgiving with a bunch of family, my aunt and uncle and cousins and my uncle's 80-something-year-old mother and... <clears throat> My cousin Tani picked me up from the airport, and we drove to the house, and my suitcase plopped down in the middle of the living room where everyone had already arrived, and everyone did the hellos and the hugs and the whatever, and then like the, the, the noise in the room sort of came down to a silence, and all of a sudden there was like this hum <laughs> that's, that filled the room. And so imagine, if you will, everyone except for the 80-something-year-old mother, like, searching around the room, like, picking up the trash can and, like, putting their ear up to the refrigerator. And all of a sudden, I realized that low hum is coming from my suitcase in the middle of the fucking living room, and I had not packed my electric toothbrush. And, um... So, as everyone is searching, I'm discreetly, like, zipped it open, like, just enough to shove my hand in there and fish around for Henry. And, um... (laughs) turn it off before anyone realized that that it was coming from my suitcase and I didn't quite fool everyone but they at least made me believe that they believed that it was my electric toothbrush that I had packed and somehow gotten uh, ignited in the travel. So fast forward to uh, end of college I graduated from school in Boston and I moved back to Colorado where I'm from and now you all know that uh, and um, I worked for the summer, I was teaching, I was saving money, and that fall I was going to move to Mississippi, to the Delta, to um, find some old blues dude and teach me his legacy. So um, I was going to be like the white girl from Colorado with red hair and freckles that could like slay on Delta blues guitar. So um, I packed up my Subaru Forester with everything that I could possibly fit and Somehow I was able to find a little corner for Henry. And um, I made my way to Cleveland, Mississippi, which is a town of 10,000 people. Uh, Does anyone know where that is? Yeah. 
That was my point, exactly. I was going to go where no one had been. And um, I got there, and the, uh, the local magazine had caught word this, like, weird white girl from Colorado had, had willingly chosen to move to the Delta to this, like, kind of trash hole town to, like, do something. So this guy from the... Uh, this guy from the newspaper picked me up, or the magazine, to interview me about why the hell I had wanted to move there. And the first thing he said to me, he picked me up and he was going to give me a tour around town. And the first thing he said to me is, so we're right here in the, in the light part of town. And that part over there is in the dark part of town. And I said, well, we should probably go to the dark part of town because I'm here to find me a blues man. <laughs> Which he really didn't appreciate. But um, <laughs> he gave me a... Uh, a tour nonetheless, and my time in Mississippi felt really short. I was only there for two weeks. Um, I had somehow caught an infection, not due to Henry, um, uh, in my colon, and that ended up in, in rushing to Nashville to Vanderbilt for emergency surgery, and I was uh, in the hospital for a long time, and my dad had flown down to uh, Nashville to help in the hospital, and um, he, uh, he we, the, after a while, we realized that I wasn't going to be able to move back to Mississippi. I was going to have to come home to Colorado. So my dad went to Mississippi to pack up my apartment uh, for me while I was um, on a morphine trip. And uh, so I, I uh, stayed in the South for a couple months, and my dad took my life home. And then around Christmas, I was able to... Um, fly back to Colorado, and I was recuperating, and um, another couple months went by, and I decided that I had moved back uh, in with my Aunt Karen while I was healing, and I decided I should probably go through all of my boxes and sort of unpack. I was, like, out of denial. I was back in Colorado. Maybe the blues thing wasn't such an awesome idea. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm going through boxes, and I find Henry perfectly packaged in the box that it had come in with all of the attachments. And all of a sudden, my life flashed before my eyes when I realized that I hadn't left Henry in the package. And the only person in the entire world who could have put it back together was my father, who had sent me to Catholic school a few years earlier. Fortunately, we've, he's never brought that that incident up, which I'm most thankful for. And at that point, I really should have burned it, you know, but it was already so nicely packaged um, back into, like, its original state. And um, so as I was unpacking my life, I was also going through my email. And my senior year of college, I had submitted with an agent to um, play overseas. And... Um, and uh, uh, she had sent me an email that was like, congratulations, you've been chosen to play in Korea. And I wrote her back, and I was like, I'm really sorry. I sort of haven't checked my email for like four months. Um, but if you want to resubmit me, I would love to do that again. So she resubmitted me for a job in Vietnam. And that fall, like six months later, I was going to move to Vietnam for four months and play music in Vietnam. And uh, by that point, I had convinced some dude that he should date me. And... Um, uh, but I was going to be gone for four months, so I packed all my stuff up, and I went to Vietnam with my trusty travel companion. And um, we had arranged for him to come to Vietnam at the end of the tour, and we were going to travel. So I, uh, 
I, so he came to Vietnam. I, um, it was the end of my contract, and we were going to travel through Vietnam and, and uh, Thailand, and I only needed to take a backpack with me. So I packed up my trunk of all the things that I wasn't going to need, and the hotel had arranged to ship it back to the United States. And off he and I went to travel at the end of my contract, and I didn't really need Henry at that point, you know? I had had Mike with me. So... Um, <laughs> So about three days into our travels, I got an email from the hotel manager himself that said customs came to take your trunk and ship it back to America. But um, everything checked out except for there's like some sort of sexual apparatus and we can't let that go across the border. So um, I have it in safekeeping in my desk. Please email me back and let me know what you would like me to do with this. So um, I emailed him back and let him know that I wasn't planning on coming back to Saigon to retrieve Henry. And um, there Henry fell to its death, finally, in Saigon, Vietnam in 2010. I'm hoping that it was 2010, but uh, so it is my road story. Megan Burt. She just put out an album. It's collaborations with a bunch of Colorado bands. It's called In Good Company. Look it up. So we're going to keep moving. So our next storyteller is in town from out of town. I guess that's how that works. Uh, she sings with a Canadian band called Bahamas. And uh, she's in town for the summit. Please welcome Carly Aikens. Hi. So I have to follow the vibrator story, okay? My story is about anal beads. Did I just say that those two words? Okay, uh, my story is not about that. I was thinking tales from the road. Uh, I've had a chance to travel all over your beautiful country. I live in Toronto. Denver happens to be one of my favorite cities that I've been able to play in, and there's just an amazing group of musicians here and. What a better weekend to come and join them all at the Denver Music Summit. I was asked last minute as well to tell a tale, and uh, I was thinking today, you know, when you're on the road, you kind of live out of your vehicle. That is your spaceship that gets you along, you know. But uh, back in the day when I first started in a band, we didn't quite have our shit together, as they say, and we didn't have a van. We had an old beater pickup truck that I, uh, our guitar player rode around in. And uh, we used to put our gear in the back and then just drape it with like a painter's tarp of some sort, like a drop cloth that you would put down when you're painting walls, you know, in case it rained on all of our gear. So we would <laughs> travel around that way. And uh, one day we were driving home. It was myself and Andrew, <clears throat> the owner of the truck, we were just shooting the shit, driving, uh, smoking cigarettes, you know, hanging out. And uh, we pulled off to, on the highway exit to our hometown. And I felt a warm glow on my face. And I looked behind me, and the entire back of the truck was on fire in giant flames. 
because I guess all the cigarettes I'd smoked I'd thrown out and they just blew into the back onto the painter's drop sheet and through the miracle of science had been fueled by the oxygen and as soon as as soon as the truck stopped they blew up into flames so my brother's vintage like prize possession drum kit was back there and they, they were in soft shell cases so those were well on their way on fire also uh, as I said we didn't have our shit together so we'd borrowed some of our friends gear and that too was on fire and so I was like can't you get out like instantly started crying and freaking out and he just got out and kind of like threw the, the drums down trying to like put the fire out and luckily a, an ambulance drove up beside us it was just happened to be there and I was like good Bill help us They'll call the police, and he's like, get in the fucking truck, get in the truck. So I get in the truck, and he drives away with the drums still on fire. And I'm like, what are you doing? What? The ambulance going to melt us. And he's like, listen, uh, we've been driving this truck around, but uh, I've got illegal plates. I, my license has been expired for about two years. I don't have any insurance on this vehicle. We cannot let the cops cut, you know, help us out. So we're driving just, like, through town with drums on fire we go to my <laughs> we go to my my brother's house and I go, kind of go in and I start crying there's an accident and he thought that you know someone had died and he just came out into his front lawn and like his drums were just sitting kind of like sadly smoking and I was like I want your drums on fire with my smoking so then we uh, lost the truck because we realized that we'd illegally been using it and uh, so that plan failed eventually we got a van um, uh, I will segue into another story because I'm supposed to fill ten minutes. I won't fill ten minutes, but um, we continued to play shows in our little minivan. And uh, one time we were in Toronto, actually, and uh, Fleet Foxes and Blitz and Trapper, some bands from around from Seattle, were in town, and we were opening for them. And they too weren't at the stage of you know riding around on fancy bus. They had rented this shitty minivan from Seattle that they had driven all the way across the country and into Canada. And so we were loading out into the back alley of this place called the Elma Combo in Toronto, which, you know, it's claimed to fame as, like, the Rolling Stones played there. But it's a shithole. And, like, in the back in the back alley is, like, where, you know, prostitutes and drug deals go down. So we're loading the stuff out kind of quickly. And there's this sewage grate kind of at the base of the of their van and they dropped the keys and the keys went directly down into the sewage drain. So we opened up the sewage drain, we kind of lifted it and there was like stalagmites forming like on the grate, like of just whatever that may be. And we looked down and it was literally like red, raw sewage in a vat. So we're like, all right. So we get like a two by four and we're kind of like, stirring it around and trying to like pull the keys up and that's not successful and then we like someone got like a couple coat hangers and like we were we were trying all kinds of stuff but no success and suddenly the bass player came out and he had found like a painter's suit with a hood on it and he kind of just walked down was like going in guys and we're like please don't do this don't this is a terrible mistake and he's like we need the keys because that was like the only set of keys they had you know, the band was from Seattle, so they had to get these keys. So he proceeds to just, like, propel his body down into the vat of sewage, and we're, like, kind of all just, like, holding onto his feet and 
crying and just, it was the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. And so he's down there for what felt like a couple minutes, but he kind of like tapped us up. We're like, we pull him up and he like stands up and he's dripping in red raw sewage, like down his head. And we're all just like standing there and he just kind of held up the keys slowly and we're like, you did it! Like so happy. And he's like, yeah, man. And that was like the greatest moment. But then like the bouncer came with a hose and was just like hosing him down in the back alley. And we're like researching where he should get his tetanus shots. And it was disgusting, but an amazing story nonetheless. And uh, now those guys drive on a bus or they don't at all. Do they even tour anymore? Who knows? But when they did, they got a bus and they didn't have to worry about that kind of stuff. And I'm still not riding on a bus, but I ride in a Dodge Sprinter, which is close enough for me and... I'll see you next time I come into Denver in that uh, space machine. Hopefully it won't be on fire. And thanks for listening. Your next storyteller is in some local Denver bands like the Pirate Signal and Blackhearts. Please welcome Jonas Abraham. Hey. So uh, I got asked to do this like maybe two weeks ago. And uh, so the past two weeks have been horrible. Because <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I guess the, the and I, I don't want to sound, you know, dour or black cloudish, though I thoroughly am. But I will, I will start this story or these sets of stories with... <sighs> One basic tenet of the touring experience. It sucks. It's awful. I mean, the, real, the reality of it is like, oh, you go play shows in front of people and party every night and live the dream. You sit in a car for 10, 12 hours. Maybe, if you plan it good, it's six hours. Maybe four, six hours. That's soul crushing. Tour bus, car, anything. It's literally every mile in that odometer is some equal distant measurement of your soul being sucked out. Checking out of hotels, soul sucking. It's like moving every damn day. <laughs> but, um, so that having been said, okay, so like tour stories, right? So the tenet, the basic tenet of a tour story is that it would be calamity, right? It'd be something bad that happened to me on tour. Well, I have way too many of those stories. But I thought, what is special? Like, oh, our, our car broke down. Oh, exciting. I met a girl, and then I got laid. We got so wasted. Nothing. So I have two stories, okay? Two, the first one is I went on tour with Cool Keith. Anybody ever heard of Cool Keith before? He is hands down, and this is a great accomplishment, the single weirdest rapper that ever lived. <laughs> this is a major accomplishment he deserves to be lauded for. Perhaps his greatest record is a record called Dr. Octagon. You know, the, the character he had assumed in the album was called Dr. Octagonecologist, and it's, it's essentially it's basically a story of a space gynecologist. He's the fucking man. <laughs> so anyway, so 
I tell you this story because, okay, so, like, basically it started in Denver. I had a manager at the time. He put this together. We're going to go on tour with Cool Keith. I mean, this is 10 years after Dr. Octagon, but it's still kind of cool. So I'm like, yeah. And he's like, why aren't you more excited? Black Cloud. So, uh, nonetheless, you know what I mean? We do this thing. So, really what happened was Cool Keith tour manager is one of the many vampires that live within the music industry and turn good, honest artists into shells of their former selves. So what he did basically was my manager booked this tour, uh, manager at this time, quote unquote manager. There are a lot of fucktards running around wanting to be managers, okay? So anyway, quote unquote manager books this tour with Cool Keith and basically Cool Keith's manager just played this hellacious game of like increasing the guarantee every show gradually. So the first show was in... LA, but it was, it was, oh no, it was Long Beach, and it was this place called The Vault, and it sucked, it was awful. And then the next night, we played in LA, actual LA, and it was the Knitting Factory, was sold out, it was amazing. And the next day, I got to go shopping with Cool Keith on Rodeo Drive, which is interesting, because it was his request, it was very important. You cannot, you can't, well, let me do his voice, he talks like Mike Tyson, he's like, he does like this, kind of, it's kind of like this. You can't, you can't wear the same outfit you wore all day to the show. You can't even really own the clothes that you, that you wear in before that day. You got to have new clothes, you know? And this is also the week of the VMAs. So in between Walking with Cool Keith, it's like you see like Lil Wayne or like CeeLo on Rodeo Drive. But none of them really outshone Cool Keith, you know? He was just, he's a ray of light. So, uh, you know, he just was really, like, spaced out and distant. But he's, like, this really nice person. So we're sitting down at this place, this fast food, and he just looks over at the lady next to him and just starts hitting on her. It was amazing. And he just, I can't even remember what he said, but at first he said something really crass, and she was cussing him out. And then he was just really soft-spoken and just continued to say, and he walked away with his phone number. It was fucking amazing. Okay. I guess that's really the story. I mean, just like think of the context, though. I mean, it wasn't like any specific happened. I just got to go shopping on Rodeo Drive with Cool Keith. You know what I mean? That's my fucking story. Okay? So then, this is another one. Okay, so <laughs> I don't know if you guys are familiar with the New York Police Department. They have a policy called stop and frisk. You probably, less than me, know about stop and frisk. There's a certain quality you need to possess to really receive that stop and frisk. You know? Uh, I don't want to get up here like a minority story, black man struggle. No, it was a unique opportunity to flex intellectual muscle on these tiny-brained New York Police Department. So I was standing outside of this place in Harlem, a pretty, you know, predominantly black place. Bill Clinton lives there, but the rest, I mean, it's mostly black people, so... Outside of Harlem, and like my friends go into the store, and I'm just sitting outside there, and I take a tissue out of my pocket. I'm just leaning against in Harlem, and I, I just, again, it just blows me away. So I pull out this napkin, blow my nose, and put it back in my pocket, and all of a sudden, someone, hey, what do you got there? A napkin? Um, turn around. I'm going to need to uh, stop and frisk you. What? You're going to need to do What? Uh, I don't know if you know, but this is 125th Street. And, I mean, he, he had a New York accent. It was a little bit more. This is 125th Street. 
He's a white guy, but he still had that kind of accent. You know what I mean? It's 125th Street, and there's a lot of suspicious behavior over here. And I don't know if you know, but what you just did, a lot of people that I arrest, they do that. And I was like, wow, a lot of people you arrest or a lot of people you stop and frisk <laughs> blow their nose. God for fucking bid. So... Again, I'm not, I tell you, I swear to God, I took this opportunity. I'm on Harlem, you know, I'm fucking Malcolm X. I'm yelling at the top of my lungs. My rights as a human are being violated because I blew my nose. You feel that you can run your hands all over my body and just grab and feel and put me in cuffs? Am I not human? Are we not men? I mean, I was going the fuck off. I'm on Harlem. People are looking. They're like, what is this? Because, you know, they're all getting stopped and frisked every day. I don't know. These, they just take it, I guess. they just like, yeah, okay, go ahead, officer. I'll be goddamned. Me blowing my nose is going to have some happy-go-lucky, glad-handy NYPD jack-off come rub me down. He's got another fucking thing coming. So, as you know, I'm going, this point, several police officers have come. But it's not as if they want to stop me. They just kind of want to hear me talk. So I'm going off, going off about the fact that all I've done is come to this city. And the one time I come to New York, being from Denver, Colorado, being a black male, I really get to experience the New York life. I get the fucking stop and frisk. Not 24 hours. Black in New York. Stop and frisk. This is real shit. You know, I'm actually enjoying this whole thing, but at the time, I seem really mad, you know? Like, the fire in my eyes is unbelievable. So at some point, I realized I was really kind of going off. So I decided to... I'm, I, we're done here, right? I mean, I've thoroughly berated these officers. Still within the legal bounds. I didn't curse. I just... Pigs, you know, these... A lot of, uh... A lot of pork stuff. So anyway... I go inside, and my friends are there, and they're all looking at me, and I walk in with a fucking army of cops in the store because they all follow me. Excuse me, we're not done. And I was like, what else is there? And so, you know, I'm like, these are my friends. We're all in from Denver. And they're like, what? We're not your friend. You know, (laughs) they're turning off. And uh, at that point, I don't know, I said something, and I made it sound like I was really sad. And one of the female officers, she said, well, why are you laughing then? And I looked at her long and hard. I said, to keep from crying. (laughs) Then we were done. (laughs) That was dope. (laughs) All right. Jonas Abraham, give it up for him. His group, Blackhearts, just put out a new EP. I'm holding it in my hand. All right, we are going to move right along. So, your next storyteller. Uh, He is the manager of a band you might have heard of. Uh, They're called The Flaming Lips. Uh, He also runs a school, which is called ACM at UCO, which he described to me as just a school of rock and roll. School of rock. Please welcome Scott Booker. Hello. Uh, There's a lot of people here. You know, usually uh, the bands are in front of people, not me. So if I seem a little nervous, uh, just laugh. Um, I'm not going to talk about 
vibrators, although these days with Wayne, you never know. Um, I don't travel a lot with the Flaming Lips, so what I'm going to do is kind of take a day in the life of, of, of being on the road with the Flaming Lips, and this would be 2004. We were about to play the um, Coachella Festival, which is a big concert. Have you, got, you guys know Coachella, right? Okay, it's a big concert in California, and we were, we were playing. It was going to be a great year, 2004. It was the Cure, and the Flaming Lips were on right before them, and there was different bands like Bell and Sebastian and um, Bro- uh, Broken Social Scene and all these great bands I was very excited about. And so I decided I think I'll travel with the Lips. There was also one other thing that I thought was very important, significant, that I felt like I should be there. It was going to be the first show that we used the, the space bubble. Um, are you familiar with the giant hamster ball-like item that Wayne would get in and then walk on top of the audience, right? Okay. Well, the hamster ball, uh, I'm sorry, space bubble, is <laughs> significant in my life because it's made me a lot of money. <laughs> I'm not joking. So, but I, I thought I would go because we, we, Wayne came to me and was like, I want to get in a bubble and I want to walk on the audience. And I thought that was very, you know, pseudo Jesus like. And I thought, great, okay, well, walking on water, walking on the audience, same difference. He'll get in the bubble. It's not going to work. He's never going to find one. He calls me a week later and he, he finds a bubble. And it's this guy in Italy who had the bubble. And he's like, you're going to buy it. And I was like, well, I don't speak Italian. And, um, but I'll, I'll try to do this anyway. So I call and this man answers and, uh, I'm like, hello, ciao. And, um, he's like, do you speak English? And I was like, yes, yes. I'm, 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 uh, calling to purchase what they called a water ball. And the idea of this thing is a big plastic ball and you're supposed to get in it and you, I dance in this ball on, in your swimming pool. And, uh, but Wayne wanted to walk on the audience instead. So anyways, I called, and it turned out this guy, strangely enough, was, and the band and myself are all from Oklahoma. So was he. He's like, you're from Oklahoma. Oh, yeah, I'll give you a good deal on this. I'm not going to tell you how much, but it was a good deal. And so this strange guy in Italy from Oklahoma sold me the space bubble. And, you know, we call it the space bubble because the story we, we tell people or told people, now it's, it's, it's not true but um, we told people that we got it from NASA. And it could have been true because we actually have a friend that was working on the uh, habitat that people are going to live on Mars in. And he said, oh, yeah, we're probably going to have a bubble like that. So we thought, well, here's our space bubble that we're going to have. So whenever anyone wanted us to use this, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, so anyways, we, we're, we're getting ready to go on stage, it was before the cure, and um, it was taking quite a while, because the monitors, we were having some real issues with the monitors, and it turns out, the reason why we were having issues with the monitors is because uh, the guy running the monitors uh, worked for an artist that was mad at us, Uh, his name rhymes with wreck, and um, we did this tour where we were wreck-like person's band, right? 
And there was an article in Esquire magazine where uh, the title of it was, Wreck uh, is a Dick. And it made it seem like we were saying this, and we weren't. It actually was the author of the, the, the article that did it. But nevertheless, this was, uh, by the way, the article came out in March 2003, and Coachella was in, was in 2004. And Wayne had sent uh, a, um, a painting to Rec, um, hoping that, hey, you know, I'm sorry about the article, whatever, here's this painting. Well, Rec didn't know about the article. He didn't really know why Wayne was apologizing, but he took the painting and was happy that he was apologized to, I guess. And, and, and then it wasn't until Coachella that we found out he just found out about this article. So he was really upset about it, and we were upset about it as well. And this is important because his monitor guy was the one running our monitors, and we believed at the time that he was messing with us. So the show took a while to start. So we, we finally get the show going, we play a couple songs, and then Wayne gets the bubble. And he um, is, is we, we blew it up with a leaf blower. You get in it, you blow it up with a leaf blower, and it's this thin piece of plastic, and you walk on the audience. Now, as his manager, I felt slightly responsible that he might die. And I was really worried about that. I mean, there's 70,000 people out there, and I was afraid that, you know, because we'd never done this before. I, I thought someone was going to, you know, poke it with a cigarette and it was going to deflate. He was going to sink into the audience and suffocate as fans were trying to hug him and kiss him or whatever they do. <laughs> so, actually, there's a documentary about the Coachella that year, and you have footage of us performing. And if you look closely, you'll see a slightly, well, a lot thinner version of myself on stage holding a knife. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's kind of scary in hindsight. I'm sure someone on stage was like, who's the crazy guy with the knife? <laughs> but me, being Flaming Lips manager and dear friend of Wayne Coyne, I thought... Well, if he is about to suffocate, I will jump out there and cut him out of that. <laughs> now, the good news is, uh, cigarettes didn't affect the bubble. And uh, he walked out there on these people, and, uh, and it was amazing. Everyone loved it. Uh, my other fear was that he was going to keep walking, you know, <laughs> and never come back. <laughs> but he figured out a way to, to come back to the stage. And at this point, we, our 45-minute set had nearly been... It was gone. There was only time to play one more song, and one of the songs they did... We did three and a half songs. I, you know, four, but I'll say three and a half, because one of them was Happy Birthday to Rex's um, new baby. And we did it as like, hey, we're sorry, you know, about the article, and, and here you go. So my fear was... And by the way, this was the biggest paying gig we'd ever had at this point. Um, by no means anywhere near what we earn now, if there's any promoters out there. <laughs> but it was $75,000. And we played three and a half songs. So after the set, I'm terrified, thinking the promoter of the show is going to come up to me and beat me up. Fortunately, I had a knife. <laughs> but he didn't, actually. He, I saw him, you know. Here comes the promoter making a beeline straight towards me after the set. And I'm just, I'm ready. And he comes up and he just grabs me and he was like, no 
that was the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. So we, we, we got away with it. And, uh, and to, in my head was not only the bubble, but uh, playing three and a half songs for $75,000, which is a manager. And you think about numbers a lot. That's a pretty great amount of money per song. <laughs> Nevertheless, the bubble caused a little bit of an uproar and people really loved it. And, and, and two things happened after this, and I don't know where I'm at time-wise, but one was there was an uh, issue of Newsweek with Donald Rumsfeld on the cover, and there was a story in the music section about Coachella and, and live music, and there was a two-page spread in the photo was of Wayne, I'm nearly done, okay, it was of Wayne in the bubble, okay? And the, um, you know, beautiful part about that was after that, everyone wanted to book the Flaming Lips, but they wanted the bubble. To which I was like, well, you can have the bubble, but I have to rent it from NASA. (laughs) And it's $25,000 more. And they always said, great. <laughs> so I'm, I'm finishing right now, but the moral, if you want to call it that, the lesson of this live element of our story is when you're, as a manager or a booking agent, your, your crazy artists come to you and ask you to do things that seem unrealistic and nuts, do it anyway. Worst that could happen is he might almost die and, and you can save him with a knife. And, and the best thing that could happen is you, you make a lot more money. Um, and with the lips and myself, over the years, I've learned, you know, uh, let Wayne do what he does. And it, it always works. So as a manager, as a booking agent, trust your artist. Tell them what you think. There's nothing wrong in that. Tell them that you think they're crazy, but we'll do it anyway. So... Thank you for letting me speak for 10 minutes. That was Scott Booker. We have a couple storytellers left, and uh, I'm excited for both of them. This next storyteller uh, was in a great band called The Czars. Um, He's been with The Fray for seven years. He spent this last summer touring with Frank Ocean and was most recently on The Tonight Show. And Jay Leno, also with The Fray. He's done our show once before. It was incredible. Please welcome Jeff Lenzenmeyer. Hi, everyone. Thanks. Um, so, Scott, that was awesome. My, my old man toured with, did some touring with The Flaming Lips, and I could tell a few stories about that. But I want to do this very civilly, and I... Uh, I just want to show hands. Do you guys want to hear the time I made it? Or do you want to hear the two times I was in a strip club? Okay. The time I made it. This looks good. <laughs> two times I was in a strip club. Okay. <laughs> it won by a narrow margin of like, it was like two hands to six. So... Um, yeah, I was, I've been in a strip club uh, twice. Um, and I don't really look like the kind of guy that would go to a strip club, but I'm going to explain why I was at strip clubs. So the first time I ever went to a strip club, I was uh, to, on tour, and we were playing a show in Paris. 
my band was playing a show in Paris, and we were staying at this hotel, and where, where, you stay, where the bands stay in Paris is sort of like, there's a, there's a pretty good hotel, and then across the street, there's all these strip clubs. And so we went and drove and checked into the hotel, and we were like, uh, we were going to rush off to the venue. We're on our way to the venue, and there was, we were driving past the place called, and it was the trashiest, dirtiest, grossest place ever, and it, <laughs> and it was called Club Nookie. And, <laughs> and so everybody in the, in, in the vehicle was like, Oh my God, who goes to Club Nookie? That's so, oh my God, that would be like the scariest place ever to go, you know? Blah, blah, blah. So we go to the venue, we, we check in, we start playing, and our tour manager was getting, was a guy named Jayos, which he obviously was British. And <laughs> he really did, he said his name like that, Jayos. And so, <laughs> so uh, he kept getting more and more drunk as the night progressed, and that was very unlike him. And after the show, we said, you know, like, what's going on with you? And he was just drunk enough, and he was like, I, oh, no, it's, okay, okay, it's my birthday. It's my birthday. <laughs> and we were like, what? He's like, yes, yes, it's just my birthday. And I, we said, oh, my God, we have to do something really crazy. Like, we have to do, we have to celebrate your birthday. And then everyone looked at each other and said, we're going to Club Nookie. <laughs> so... <laughs> This is the first time I was ever in a strip club. And uh, so we took the van, and we parked it at the hotel, and we walk over to, the, to Club Nookie, and we look in. There's these two big, you know, like sort of uh, Eastern European-looking dudes, you know, at the front. And they're like, and we're like, uh, how do we do this? Like, how does this happen? And they're like, oh, it's like 20 francs to get in. And we're like, oh, no, that's okay. We're going to go. No, 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 wait. 20 francs, and all of your drinks are free for the first round. And we said, hmm, okay, that sounds great. Because <laughs> that was like pretty cheap drinks. So we pay the money, we walk in, and there's, uh, there's two girls sitting at the bar getting drunk with the bartender, and they all looked at us like, what the fuck are you guys doing here? And we kind of knew we were in trouble right away, and the, but the bartender was like, no, 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 please, I ask you, uh, please come in, and uh, uh, ladies, ladies, go, 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 uh, allez, allez. And then, uh, you know, <laughs> so we sit down, and we order our drinks, and absolutely nothing happens. Like, these girls come back out, and talk to us for a minute, and it's just really horrible and lame, and we drink our drinks as fast as we can, and we're like, man, we got to get out of here. We're leaving. <laughs> and uh, as we finish our drinks, we start standing up, and this bartender guy was like, no, 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 wait, you know, you have not seen the girls, and uh, it is, uh, no, you have to wait. And we said, like, no, it's, it's fine. We don't need to see anything. You know, this was really great. We enjoyed having our drinks. And he's like, no, 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 you must see these girls. And uh, no, and uh, uh, Valerie, please. Uh, you know. And so Valerie gets up, and, <laughs> and we're trying to respectfully watch this, and like basically nothing really happens like she kind of gets up and she kind of goes and we're like wow that's really amazing you're so good Valerie like that we were really entertained but we gotta go you know we're gonna go (laughs) and (laughs) and so so we get up to go and the guy's like 
no, you, you leave, you're going to leave? And we said, yeah, we're, yeah we got to go, man. We got, we've got to go. And he's like, oh, no, please stay. And he's like, no, we're leaving. We're just going to go. Thank you very much. And he said, okay, okay, wait, wait, wait. Uh, if you leave, I uh, just go get your bill very fast and uh, it'll be just one minute. We're like, what, what bill? Like, we paid our money to get in. And <laughs> we, uh, that's it. Like, there's no bill. Like, we tipped you, that's it. And he's like, no, 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 I show you. It is uh, very complicated. I show you, I show you. And he, he comes back in it <laughs> with this little piece of paper. And written on the paper, it just says, orange juice, $200. Orange juice, $200. And we're like, what do you, like, what is, what is that even? Is this like 200 francs? And he's like, no, it is, uh, you know, like uh, American dollar, whatever you have is, is fine. We take anything. It's uh, 400, 400. And we're like, what? No, no, okay, this is getting weird. We're going to leave. And as we're saying that, you know, like, whoop, two big Middle or Eastern European guys shut the door, lock the door, and we're like, oh, shit. <laughs> and child, child was just drunk enough to be like, what the bloody fucking hell? And he runs. So he walks up and he starts creating havoc. Eastern European guy. Whoop. Throws him. Throws him over the tables. I had had a few drinks, so I was like, wait, my friend. Yep. Whoop. Over the tables. Uh, and Giles and I kind of looked at each other and we're like, this is, this is bad. And so we grabbed our wallets and shoved them down our pants. <laughs> <laughs> and pretty much that's like that's basically what happened and then these East, Eastern European dudes came over and were like okay uh, they were playing like good cop bad cop and they were like I think no 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 don't kill them I think they are going to pay don't kill them and, <laughs> and then the other really weird thing that happened was in the middle of this knock on the door the French police come in and we're like Thank God! Oh my God! These guys are like trying to, like, fucking get it. Like, they're charging us $400 for these imaginary, like, orange juices. And, like, in the middle of the thing, they said, So, are these guys going to pay or uh, do we take them to jail? And, and we're like, Oh, fuck. <laughs> so, basically, they ended up patting everyone down. And,. Luckily, I was, not, I, was, I, was really, I was like dirt poor. Like, I'm still poor. And, and <laughs> but there was one guy in the band, and he wasn't as poor as the rest of us, and he kind of had his shit together, and he just has like, he's just that guy that's like together. And, but he was, uh, unfortunately for him, he was not smart enough to put his wallet down his underwear. And so, <laughs> so they patted everyone down, didn't really find anything. They took all of our like German money and whatever. And they pat us down, they pat him down, and they're like, oh, wallet, yes. And they pull out his Visa card, and he's like, no, you know, it's like really hard to use here. He's like, no, no, it's not a problem, and, uh, you know, I take it, and, uh, yes. Uh. So he swipes the money, takes like 500 bucks, I think, out of his <laughs> Visa. And then uh, after that, the guy's like, unlock the door, and he's like, please, please, everybody, please uh, let, allow me to buy you a drink, please. And the guy whose credit card just got swiped was, was definitely like, Fuck you! 
fuck this. And like storms out, heads to the hotel. The singer, who was very dramatic and kind of crazy anyway, was like, well, I mean, we did pay for these drinks, so, you know. Like, I do think you definitely owe us, like, some nice drinks. And, <laughs> and the, this French guy was like, yes, yes, right away, I go right away. And the, yes, so he brings us out drinks. And then we proceeded to stay there for four hours while we drank for free. <laughs> and he showed us pictures of his kids. And, you know, at the end of the night, he was like, he said, uh, you know, basically, uh, is, it is like this. I, I rip off very stupid Americans who are stupid enough to come in here. And, uh, you know, and sometimes in life you win and sometimes in life you lose. And, you know, tonight you lose. So, uh, but I made uh, many good friends tonight. And it's... Uh, and we hugged, and like he was on the guest list for the next time we were in Paris. <laughs> so that's the first time we went. The second time I ever was in a strip club. Uh, same band, of course. And uh, we were in Vienna, and we were playing a show. And the, the singer of that band was... <laughs> after the show, I was, I was a little drunk, the singer was a little drunk, and the singer was like, I really need, like, need to go out. I want to go out. I really need to go out. And I was like, I kind of feel like going out too. I just want to go out too. And the promoter of the club was like, oh, you know, it's my, that's my job. You know, like I want to keep you guys happy and uh, just stay here. And the singer was like, well, I'm definitely going to go to a gay club because I, I have to go to gay clubs. And I was like, I don't, we always go to gay, I don't want to do that. Can we please not? And the promoter was like, Okay, I, no, it's perfect. I know, I know just what to do. And so eventually these, these two women come up and they're like, uh, okay, are you ready to go? And say, yes. And so these two women that we don't know, we've never seen, put us in their car and drive us around Vienna and they're like, this is this big church and this is this really crazy place and they're feeding us drinks and then we pull up to this place and it's obviously a strip club, but it's in the middle of Vienna and it's fucking gorgeous and there is a line of people in tuxedos and, like, prom dress-looking things, like, out, out the door, down the street, like, around the corner. Just crazy. So these same thing. These two, like, Middle Eastern-looking dudes or uh, Eastern European-looking dudes come up, and they're like, are you guys, uh, yes, are you guys is ours? I said, yes. And they come and take us and put wrist, uh, wristbands on. They said, this wristband, gets, everything's free. Everything's free. Come in here. And we passed the line. And it's like one of the first times I remember kind of feeling like a rock star. It's like, ooh, this is so fancy. And um, so we went in, and basically everything was suede and gorgeous. It was fucking amazing. And like, there was three stories uh, the first floor of this place was like a burlesque type of crazy thing, and there's like, but it was like this really fancy bar. And the second, the second part, the middle place was, uh, uh, it was, it just had like the most amazing variety acts. So it was, it was like uh, drag queens that did share impersonations and electronic bands and trapeze artists and magicians and the third place the third floor was a nightclub and so basically what ended up happening was we stayed there until 
10 or 11 the next day, not realizing what time it was. And we came back, you know, and, and we left the place, and the sun's in the middle of the sky, and we're like, oh, my God. And, you know, we make it back to the club, and they're like, your band is really, really looking for you guys, you know? <laughs> like, they're, they're just driving around Vienna trying to find you. And finally, we, they find us, and we're, and we're like, we're so sorry. I mean, like, but holy shit, oh, my God. It was, like, the best night I've ever had. And there was, like, trapeze artists, and there was all these people, like, there was, like, the Cher impersonator that was so fucking good. And, like, <laughs> and they were, like, everybody else in the band was, like, I knew I should have gone out. I knew it. Like, that's so stupid. So fast forward four years. It's the guitar. We're playing Vienna again. It's the guitar player's birthday. And, of course, everyone's like, man, we are going to this Club Casanova place. It's your birthday. It's like we have to do it. And <laughs> so the same promoter, same time, way less people came this time, I have to add, to our show. And the promoter was like, you want to what? No, well, there's a cab outside, and I don't know, you could probably call one. And we're like, oh, that's kind of weird. Okay, well, so we, we jump in a cab, and we go to the same club, and it's a Sunday night, and there's one person, there's no one there, all the lights are off, and there's one person with the light on and the little ticket counter. And the, we walk up, and they said, oh, yeah, you know, it's still, it's still like 40 bucks a person to get in here. And we're like, oh. But it's this place. We have to do it. And it's like your birthday. Blah, blah, blah. So we went back in. And what did we see? There was four girls getting drunk at the bar with one guy bartending. <laughs> and uh, we, so we went in. And at first they looked at us like, what the fuck are you doing here? And then they said, well, what the hell? Let's order drinks. And so... We spent the rest of the night, the first, the first, they said, no, you're here, we're going to do the show, we're going to do the whole show for you guys. So the bartender serves us drinks, and then goes up, and does a whole magic act, we're the only people in the whole place. He does, he does a magic act, and then said, okay, the first girl is, uh, you know, and this girl comes in, like, riding a motorcycle, <laughs> And then does this whole burlesque crazy thing on a motorcycle. And then the second girl was like this big Russian girl. And she was in a cage, you know. And she, the cage swung in and she like comes down on some pole. And she gets down and she grabs the singer, which made me particularly happy. So she grabbed the singer and she puts him on a chair right in front of us. And then goes to the stage and grabs a whip. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, and basically <laughs> proceeded to whip him in front of us with his shirt off, and it was awesome, because he was kind of a real dick sometimes. Um, <laughs> and so they went through the whole thing. We were there for five and a half hours, and they ended up just sitting around and drinking with us the rest of the night. And uh, those are the two times I've been in a strip club. Thank you very much. Totally almost ate shit there. Jeff Lindsay-Mayer. Uh, we have made it to our last storyteller. Thank you so much for being here and for taking part in this great event. 
Uh, I want to thank our storytellers again, and please, if you get a chance, support them in their musical endeavors. Uh, that's incredibly important. Uh, I'm going to plug our own shit again because I've got a microphone in front of me. We have a monthly storytelling show called The Narrators, uh, and it takes place the third Thursday of every single month at the Deer Pile in Denver. Our next show is December 19th, and our theme is Toys. We might have some vibrator stories. I have no idea. I'm, I'm going to say yes. We will definitely have vibrator stories. But maybe not all of them. We'll have some G.I. Joe, too. So our last storyteller, she is in town for the summit as well. She's a member of the Doom Tree Collective. She is a musician and essayist. And she has a brand new album out called Parts of Speech. Please welcome Dessa. So I was born into a Catholic family, and, uh, and when my little brother was born, I was like five years old, and the priest refused to baptize him. He was a really, like, by-the-book priest, and he had a copy of the Jerusalem Bible, and he was tapping it. And he told my parents, you have to, select. she had a heavy accent, but I can't do it. He was like, you have to select another name. Um, there are no St. Maxwell's. And my dad, who is not into this idea at all, he has like his only son in his arms and his only tie around his neck. And he's like, if we don't name anybody Max, how would we get a St. Maxwell? <laughs> Fair enough, so it worked. And then um, in the summer of 1989, my brother was three, and he, we're both... Puerto Rican, but he has like much darker skin, and so he had turned exactly the same color from head to toe. Like he had tanned exactly the same color that the sun had bleached his hair, which was incidentally like the same kind of caramel color of his eyes. And my dad would call him Copper Top. And I would save new pennies so that I could set them on his little upturned nose to admire the camouflage effect. <clears throat> The summer after that, um, Max got his first bee sting, and he was, he was freaking out, like legitimately, you know, b losing his mind. And so he ran across the backyard. I'm like five years older than him, which kind of inserts that parental vibe. And he's burying his face in the fabric of my T-shirt, and he's inconsolable. And I'm sort of thinking, like, maybe he's one of those kids who's anaphylactic. You know, this is his first bee sting, so you probably wouldn't know before. So I'm like, oh, shit. Like, I've seen this on TV. I'm like, Max, 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 Max. Hey, Max. And I turned his head up, you know, so I'm holding his little cheek, and I was like, does it hurt, like, a lot, a lot? Like, a lot, a lot, so much, so much everywhere? And he was like, no. I was like, then why are you freaking out so bad, man? And he was like, I just don't know why he did it. I was like, oh, sweet. I was like, um, it wasn't the first thing. It was like he had his first enemy, you know? <laughs> and uh, my father was a glider pilot, and so he would sometimes bring Max and I to the grass runways of the airfield where he flew. And gliders, for those of you who don't have weird parents, are wooden planes without motors. So you, they're like varnished one-man kites. And <sighs> great way to raise a couple kids if you're thinking about it. And so he, uh, 
he would fly these, these planes and you essentially ride invisible columns of rising warm air called thermals to gain altitude. And if you're good at it, you can stay up for a really long time. To be good at it, you really have to like, be able to read the meteorological conditions pretty well. And so since I was little, my dad would, um, would educate me and then quiz me on the nomenclature of clouds. You know, so by the time I was like 10, I was pretty good at being like, that's a whatever, you know, nimbus, that's a Sirius, that's a stratus. And we're rolling around on one of the grass runways in my dad's like beat up airport car that he has like a siren that he can throw up when he needs it and then take it off if cops are around really fast. <laughs> Max is in the back seat. I'm in the front seat. And my dad says, hey, Max, and then he centers like a cloud in the middle of the windshield. And he says, son, name that cloud. And I'm like, oh, shit. You know, this is like a rite of passage. Like, it's Max's turn to name the clouds, you know. And I'm like, you got this. It's, an, it's a fucking, you know, cumulostratus. Like, you got this shit. You got it. And Max is like, he's in the back. And so he, he gets up on his knees. And he's like real chipmunky because he's leaning over the, the bench seat. And he says, I named that cloud. Alex Rasmussen. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that is so wrong. This is, and my dad was like, that is an excellent name for a cloud. And I was like, fuck you, dude. Like, I'm 10 and I know Latin. You know? I, that's why I always feel like the second kid like, gets love way easier. Anyway. Uh, when, Max was, when Max was 16, he had his first thorough heartbreak, and speaking on the sensation, he said, I have come to the conclusion that if you hit rock, bar rock bottom hard enough, you will bounce. <laughs> and, then, and then when he was 17, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and I was uh, on palpitation. The, my specialist said, your tumors are mobile, which means they have to come out right away. And I remember imagining like, my tumors in little biplanes with like, those little classic leather helmets motoring around and around my right ovary. And, um, and so yeah, you have to go in right away, and Max came to the hospital with me, and he flirted with all the nurses, and they loved him. And... Um, and looking up at him, at him smiling down at me, I remember fighting the anesthesia to the, to the black end. And when you're, when you're under, you know, you can sometimes have these kind of memories that float past or kind of sedation fever dreams. And I remember being on a road trip with my family as a kid, and we were driving through Gary, Indiana, and it was in the middle of the night. And I woke up, and I was in the back seat and kind of out of it because I, I was just recently conscious. And I looked out the window, and I don't know if it was a refinery, but I, there were these tall and slender spires that were studded with white lights and this kind of whirling steam that created a really otherworldly kind of impression. And I watched it grow larger in the window, and then I tapped my father, who had been unaware that I was awake. And I said, are we at the Emerald City? And he said, no, baby, we're in Gary, Indiana. <laughs> so the surgery is a success. Obviously, the surgery is a success. Um, and Max and I are both now young adults who can stay up all night and drink and, and curse when my mom's not around. And 
Um, we will eventually speak at, at one another's weddings and probably help raise the other's kids. Eventually, we will bury my father in his only tie, and ultimately, one of us will probably speak at the other's funeral. And everybody knows that people die. Everybody knows that. But I think Max and I really came to appreciate the fact that some people die first. So, I'm older, um, but girls live longer, so it's kind of an even... It's anybody's gall. It is anybody's race at this point. Um, more recently, I received an email from Max, who was touring Europe on his own road trip, kind of following a path that I had taken five or six years earlier. And he wrote me this note to like fill me in. And he said, yes, I agree. The Spanish girls are way prettier than the French ones. <laughs> yep. And he can grow a really stupid beard. And he graduated high school by an, a much narrower margin than anyone had really anticipated or was comfortable with. And at the end of his email, um, he said, hey, any suggestions for your little bro? And if I had written him back just right, I would have said, Maxwell, select your landmarks very carefully because it is easier than you imagine to memorize your route using touchstones that won't actually be there on your return. And if you need me and I'm breathing, I will come and get you. And when you finally call for me and I don't answer, go to Gary. They hid paradise in the last place that anyone would look. That was Dessa. The Narrators Podcast is recorded and produced by the Denver Diatribe. Check out their weekly show at denverdiatribe.com. The Narrators Podcast is brought to you by these amazing sponsors. The great guys at Illegal Pete's and Greater Than Records, who in addition to providing rad burritos all over town, provide great local music and comedy. Check out the appropriately named Sexy Pizza at either of their locations in Capitol Hill or Old South Pearl, or on their website, sexypizzaonline.com. And finally, by the internet superheroes at Commerce Kitchen, who provide internet marketing solutions and search engine optimization for all your e-commerce needs. Check them out at commercekitchen.com. For more information about the narrators and to listen to past episodes, go to the narratorspodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>